This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith, politics, and all kinds of big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished people of goodwill in good faith. And it is an honor to announce that our program is now part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And we're talking a lot about that today. Really excited about this, as you can probably tell. (laughs) Please remember to subscribe if you haven't already. Tell a friend, give us a good rating and leave a review. Easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. The A-N-D is spelled out, politicsandreligion.us. Or feel free to connect with me on all the social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Post News. I might get back onto Twitter, or excuse me, TikTok, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. The jury's still out. But you can find me on all of those at Corey S. Nathan. And it's C-O-R-E-Y with an E. S is in Sam, Nathan. That's Corey S. Nathan. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with two special guests. Today, we're joined by Jenna Spinelli and Brandon Stover. Jenna is the communication specialist for the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University and the founder of the Democracy Democracy Group Podcast Network. And Jenna also teaches journalism in the College of Communications at Penn State. Brandon Stover is the network manager of the Democracy Group. He is the host of the podcast, Brandon Stover on Life. And he's the founder of Plato University, where the mission is to help people find purpose and learn skills for social impact careers. Thank you, Jenna and Brandon, for joining me today. How are you both doing? Doing really well. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for having us. Yeah, super excited to be here, Corey. Thank you for the invitation. This is so cool. And I've been sharing with folks that it is such an honor to be a part, the newest part of the democracy group. I I really appreciate both of you giving me um, that opportunity and giving our show a little bit more of a platform. Uh, it, it reminds me of that uh, Groucho Marx joke. <laughs> Any club that would have me as a member, I, I'm very <laughs> suspicious of. <laughs> anyway, it's something like that. Um, so I wanted to start this way, learn a little bit more about both of you. So Jenna, I, uh, I, I'm i I'm very dubious. Uh, speaking of dubious, I'm very dubious. Did you know that your Twitter account is suspended? <laughs> Uh, I did. Yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, uh, I like a lot of people got frustrated with Twitter, like I'm getting off Twitter, you know, Uh, and so I didn't use it for a couple of years. I think it got hacked. And but now, uh, as is often the case with social media and Twitter in particular, I am back. Uh, So (laughs) if you look for at Jenna Spinelli, you'll find me there. Awesome. Awesome. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes. I just thought that you just got under Elon's uh, skin or something like that. And... Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> working on it. Working on it. Um, so I, I also noticed, uh, so you went to Penn State. Did you grow up in Pennsylvania? I did. Uh, I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, uh, a town called Pottsville, which is where they brew yingling beer, if that's oh. familiar uh, to any of your your listeners. 
You know, what's funny is I, I spent a lot of time at, in my late teens and early 20s in Bucks County, and it was the first time I was introduced to Yingling. There was this like oh, total hole in the wall in, um, it's called Devil's Half Acre, and, and it's right on uh, right on the, the river there, um, going up the river road from New Hope. And uh, man, I, I, I can still taste it. <laughs> I don't know, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> you know, memories, it's just memories. <laughs> it, you know, it all adds to the flavor of it all. So you studied journalism and now you teach journalism. Did you know that writing was your thing pretty early on? I did. Yeah, I joined the high school newspaper, um, was editor of the high school paper. Um, I, I knew probably even earlier than high school that, you know, math and science really weren't my thing. Um, and I've, I've always liked talking to people. I'm in, in most of my life, I am pretty introverted, but journalism is a good opportunity to be a little bit more extroverted and get out of my shell a little bit. I think a lot of people find their way into journalism that way. And so the, the writing just sort of came or, you know, followed from that and now I know I know this even more now teaching journalism in some ways it can be a very formulaic uh, writing style. So it's not like you're writing the next great American novel or something, but um, I'm actually teaching podcasting now and really appreciating the the creativity I'm able to bring into the classroom. I tell my students that there's so much you could do with sound design and with, you know, narrative formats and all these different things that are kind of outside the very small box of a, you know, traditional 800 word news story. So I've really liked uh, podcasting in that respect. That's interesting. So writing and podcasting as a, a craft, if you will, but it also seems that you're drawn to certain subjects. How did you start to zero in on what it was when you're creating content, what you wanted to focus on? Well, you know, a lot of it came by virtue of taking the position with the McCourtney Institute for Democracy. I mean, I've always freelanced ever since I graduated college, but you know, prior to that, I worked in college admissions. I did things that were not at all related to, to politics or democracy, but it's always been something that I'm I'm interested in. And the the McCourtney Institute and being able to start the democracy group has really allowed me to turn the things that I'm interested in and, and curious about into my profession. So I, yeah. I feel very, very lucky in that regard. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, an, another couple of questions, and I want to learn a little bit more about Brandon uh, and, and and your background. I, some Something interesting that caught my eye is that you also think like a marketer. So I was curious how your work as a journalist intertwines with your marketing-oriented roles. Yeah, I mean, so for being, you know, a, a journalist is all about building relationships with sources, right? Seeking out, like, who you need to get information from, building trust with those people so that they actually give you that information, whether you're working on on a written piece or, or a podcast episode or, or a video. Um, and I think marketing has grown to become much the same. It's you know conversations that Brandon and I have certainly had about building trust with your audience and building brand loyalty. Um, I, I think it's it's much the same as you know you're asking someone to to trust you with their time and their attention, just like a journalist is asking a source to trust them with their time and attention. Uh, and and so I, I just see lots of of overlap. I also find myself a lot in, in terms of, of marketing, going out and trying to become 
part of communities that are also interested in the same thing. Like for my show, When the People Decide, I spent a lot of time in, you know, political reform communities because that's the, the subject of that show. And so that is just like if I was going to write an article about political reform in America, I would go out and spend lots of time in political reform communities. So the kind of the the action of it or the the process of it is is very similar as well. You know, you've already begun to answer this, and we'll get into it a, 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 a little bit more later. But I was curious what ways you've utilized both sets of skills as, as a journalist as well as a marketer um, in terms of helping to launch and grow the democracy group. So, you know, part of it was when we came up with the idea of putting some structure and some process around um, a lot of one-off collaborations that I had done um, for our show, Democracy Works, and, you know, leveraging those relationships that I, I had built and having a, a sense of, of who the audience was. So um, it was about, you know, thinking about what this network was going to be, where it fit in the market, who, yeah, again, who the audience was, just like I would think about who my audience was if I was writing a story. Journalism also requires you to be very focused and, and organized and detail-oriented in terms of keeping track of, of your deadlines and who you're talking to and you know what sources you still need to contact. So all of those skills were definitely very beneficial, getting everything up and running and you know, keeping track of of shows. And I'm I'm so so fortunate now to to have Brandon on the team who, in addition to being very creative and a great marketer and, and someone who's passionate about education, is also extremely organized and um, help keeps the, helps keep the, the network running and on track in a, in a way that I'm not even sure I could. It's so interesting. You just reminded me, um, I my the very first podcast I produced was about the entertainment advertising industry. It's called Trailer Geeks and Teaser Gods. And I had the opportunity um, in my career and then doing the podcast interacting with some of the most successful marketers in the world, who, one of whom, by the way, shout out to Penn State, is the CEO of one of the most successful creative agencies in the entertainment industry, hmm. a guy named Michael McIntyre. He sometimes listens to my uh, politics show here, but he's a Penn State grad. So shout out to Penn State for that. But the reason I bring it up is it's, it's the most successful and sophisticated marketers in the world. At the end of the day, including my, I've had this conversation with Michael, uh, Penn State alum, that it's still about marketing 101. What What is your brand or your intellectual? What is, what's your IP? What's the title? Who's the audience for that brand? Where is the audience for that IP or product? And how do you engage with them in the language of whatever ecosystem you're in, where you find that audience? It, it, it's It's Again, it's just marketing one-on-one. What's your brand? Who's your audience? Where's your audience? And how do you talk to them effectively where you find them? Um, so <laughs> unless you want to respond to that, and I got it all wrong and I failed the test, but um, I did want to ask Brandon some questions. Uh, first of all, Brandon, for those who can't see you, that beard is glorious. You got to tell me some tips. Like I, I'm barely hanging with the stubble right now, but uh, tell us what your secret is. Yeah, first off is genetics. Uh, so if you don't have those, you're kind of off on a bad foot. But then after that, it's just really good care for your hair like you would do for your head uh, over and over again. Beard oil, beard wax for many, many years. This is probably five years worth of growth, six years worth of growth. So you yeah. got a little ways to go. That is awesome. Now, uh, on a more serious note, um, 
Tell me the significance of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, for you. Sure. So when I first uh, kind of started my career, I was starting out in architecture. Um, I was very drawn to design and thought it would be a way that I could impact the world in a, in a more positive manner. We interact so much with buildings. And so I figured, okay, if I can design those in a way that better people's lives, I can really have an impact on them. And I ended up working in the field for about three years and found myself very depressed. Uh, mm -hmm. I wasn't enjoying the work that I was doing. Um, felt like I was drawing lines on a computer and it, it had no impact, no meaning. And I was searching for something for myself that had more meaning. The work that I was doing was going to be impactful and was listening to podcasts around that time, uh, Impact Theory by Tom Bilyeu. And one of the books that he always mentioned that had a big impact on him was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Um, several other guests that he brought on the show, which are successful entrepreneurs and different thinkers and founders and whatnot, were also mentioning the book. And I said, well, if it worked for them, it's probably a good start for me. Uh, so I had started reading that book. And there was a specific line uh, in that book, a portion where he's talking about um, being in the concentration camp with these uh, other prisoners and being able to look at their eyes uh, from across the way. He can see, you know, one of his fellow uh, mates there and seeing the light leave their eyes. And within 72 hours, he knew that person was going to die because they had given up all meaning, all hope for life. And as I was going to work and feeling like I had no meaning, I was like, okay, is, is that going to be me eventually? Like if I lose that, is this a you know fundamental part of life? And that kind of led me, you know, down my path of entrepreneurship and trying to find you know, something that had impact and eventually getting to education and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Are you still a pretty avid reader? I am. Uh, probably a book a week. Um, mm. I'm always going to the library. It's one of my favorite places. Quite a bit in psychology, uh, quite a bit in sociology, economics. I, I'm trying to grasp an understanding of how the world works, both from the micro level of each individual individual person and then the macro level as a community you know how are we coming together as individuals yeah 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 you reminded me a man's search for meaning always reminds me of a book i'm trying to find it right now uh, that solzhenitsyn wrote someone uh, the gulag archipelago that that might be it um but i think there was one it might have just been a treatise that was a nonfiction piece that he wrote but it's it's along those same lines. And then obviously the, the other thing that came to mind uh, is, um, and, and you, you, you refer to this in, in some of your other, when I've heard you in other interviews and, and some of your writing, what was the, it was a, uh, a great thinker who talked about uh, mythology. Oh gosh, I can't believe I'm totally blanking. Uh, I didn't Joseph take Campbell. Joseph Campbell. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of, and before we hit record, I was sharing with you a, a recent book by David Brooks called The Second Mountain. Um, and that all helps us, it, it gives us um, it gives us vocabulary to grapple with these big questions, with these existential questions. So it's it's neat, but that you're a relatively young guy that often happens at a later point for a lot of folks, you know, well into their 30s, 40s, and 50s. So I give you a lot of credit. One thing that caught my attention too in reading some of your stuff and listening to you, a couple of different places, you sort of redirect and contextualize your bio, um, the, the subject in a very 
and this might annoy you, but architectural way. Do you, do you know what I'm referring to? No. Uh, could you elaborate a little more? At one point, you said the world is made up of interconnected, complex systems. And I said, that's that's a guy with an architectural background. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, specifically, I mean, that part, if you think about, because I was trying to figure out, okay, if there's these major problems going on in the world, um, we have things like poverty or education or healthcare that could all use some eyeballs and some brains and people thinking and working on this. I would love to try and go solve all of them myself, but I'm only one person. And so I'm like, how can I impact these complex systems going on in the world uh, when I'm just one person? And in my reading and in my research about psychology and the focus on the individual, and I also think a part of our country uh, building a democracy, there was a huge focus on the individual. Capitalism has a huge focus on the individual. And being able to change how an individual acts in their own life, they build a capacity in order to start affecting their community, start affecting the state, the country, and that as they fulfill their own needs, find purpose in their life, they can go and help others. And so I, I was seeing that the same way you would look at a cell in the body, where if you can cure one cell, it can go on to help and fight, you know, infection or inflammation and other stuff in other cells. So we kind of work in this complex system. If you change something for the individual, they can go forth and start changing things in those systems. That's that's neat to think about that because you're doing that, that you, you wear a couple different hats, as mentioned in the intro. Um, so how, first of all, I tell, share for our audience, we'll get, if we have time, we'll get into podcasting more broadly, but if you could share with the audience, what all is involved in being a network manager, uh, of a podcast network. Sure. So, uh, similarly to the complex system we were just talking about, I mean, we have, um, almost 20 podcasts in our network now. And as Jenna was mentioning, she was trying to formulate some sort of system around helping all of these podcasts to collaborate with one another instead of doing just one-off things. And so part of my job is helping everyone in the network to be able to smoothly do those collaborations and for all of us to come together to push forward one idea, one brand. So the democracy group, and we're specifically looking at how are things broken right now in our democracy and what are people actually doing to fix it? Boots on the streets, uh, strategies that people are implementing and hoping to educate the public and show them those sorts of things. So I'm helping facilitate projects that we're doing as a totality, as one brand. And then also our external partners. So we work with a ton of different people that are in the bridge building space and in the democracy space in order to find new audience members and people to talk to, but then also do some sort of collaborative uh, projects that help push our mission forward and theirs forward. You know, rising tides lifts all boats. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm going to create a bit.ly for my democracy group. Uh, the the page that was designed for TPNR because it's so beautiful. It's so beautifully designed. And I, checking out the the newsletter, um, it's uh, it's packed with great content, but it's also easy to navigate and beautifully designed. So I give you guys a lot of credit and uh, it's an inspiration for me as well as a, you know, kick me in the butt to, to uh, do, do a little bit better with our own website and all of our, uh, the other presence that we have now before last question. And I, I want to talk a lot more about the democracy group. Uh, Brandon, tell me about Plato university. Sure. So this was my baby uh, that I'm founding. And this was at the end of that journey of figuring out what I wanted to do in life, the problem I wanted to tackle. Um, and I was going back to asking the question of myself, okay, 
why is I, why was I not really prepared for life um, after university, either personally or professionally? What kind of problems were happening there? And I started diving into the education system for a couple of years, seeing just the holes that were happening um, as alongside this research that I was doing of meaning and purpose. And I thought about it and was saying, well, if we have these major problems going on in the world and we have these people with a lack of purpose, the thing that's like missing between those is the actual skills to put your purpose into practice and be able to actually create some sort of change in the world. Uh, so Plato University is an online university that's helping to match those passions that students have with global challenges, climate change, poverty, healthcare, and helping them to learn the skills to solve those problems. A big difference that we're trying to do is instead of you come to a university and you say, I want to get an accounting degree and you do four years, rather you come here and you say, I want to help solve poverty. Here's the skills that I have. Here's the ones that I don't. And we're only going to have you take classes for the skills that you don't have and being able to maybe do that in two months, six months, 12 months, depending on you know how much you need to learn. And then doing projects along the way that you're actually testing your thesis out of you know solving that problem like okay we're going to build a startup that you know gives money directly like the company give directly uh, or we're going to do you know some crypto thing so you kind of go out there you do some projects you see is your thesis working or not you learn some skills along the way if it is working well then you know you can graduate you can start a company or you can join another one um, if it's not working then maybe you need to adjust the skills you're learning so there's also this circular component of kind of always coming back and updating your skills, getting more education, because I don't think learning ever stops. Uh, I haven't stopped learning. So it's definitely a component we're trying to build in there as well. Yeah. Okay. Now, this this is the last Brandon <laughs> section question before we get to the democracy group. It, it's interesting because it seems it seems that you questioned many things about our traditional education system or maybe identified certain problems you know, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm thinking of my kids are uh, 22, about to be 22, 19 and 18. And the way that I grew up going to school, my parents grew up going to school for uh, certainly two out of three of my kids just didn't really work for them. That was very apparent. Not only that, they rejected the uh, by the time they got into their the second half of their teen years, um, they rejected sort of the, especially the more indoctrination style of education. And uh, my oldest kid in particular is very, very purpose-driven. So I was curious, was it was it problems that you saw and began to diagnose or questions that you had that you were grappling with and some of the answers are coming into fruition with Plato? Or how did that all come about? Uh, a little of both, I think. Um, there was problems that were near and dear to me. So like education is one that's near and dear to me. Mental health is one that's near and dear to me. Um, healthcare one again. And so I was kind of already in those realms and had questions, seen some of the problems. Other of them, like right now I'm in the middle of creating a, a course for climate change. That was me, had a little bit of knowledge about it, but I have to dive in further to figure out, you know, what are the problems? What are the different solutions that are out there? Um, I think with other people, it's when they start first with the things that are near and dear to them, because what we're trying to do is give them that internal motivation to fuel their learning that they're going to want to go learn those skills. A major problem with traditional education is to say, okay, you have to learn all of these things and you're not necessarily motivated to learn those. Doesn't mean you shouldn't learn them, but if we can get into that internal motivation that you have, of here's a problem in my life and I want to solve it. 
and then tie in economics, psychology, all of it together within that framework, you're going to have a better time at learning those things. And more often than not, drive yourself to go find resources or whatnot, because you identified a problem in your life first that you wanted to solve. Okay, (laughs) great segue to my next question, which is identifying problems. So Jenna, was it a problem that when you were founding the democracy group, was it a problem that you identified that you wanted to solve an opportunity that you saw in the marketplace or some combination thereof? What was the inspiration for the democracy group? Yeah, I think it was was a combination of those things. Uh, I mean, if you ask any podcaster what is their biggest goal, it's always to get more downloads or expand the audience for their show, right? And uh, there are also, you know, more and more podcasts being added every single day, right? So it gets harder and harder for people to organically stumble across a new podcast. And so my my thinking was that if, just like Brandon said before, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? If we could get all of these shows that cover similar topics, but in, in different ways, they're not you know carbon copies of each other by any means. But if we could say, hey, hey, if you like this podcast, well, you might also like these others. And here's a perspective that you might not have thought about because the other thing, uh, and this is maybe more, you know, of a, of a, of a social or, you know, a problem that's bigger than podcasting is that um, it's very easy in today's media system to never encounter content that you don't already agree with, uh, or that is not going to just make you feel good all the time. Um, And so, I'm hoping that through the network, um, our audience is able to maybe hear a perspective that they might not seek out on their own. You know, we have shows that are kind of across the political spectrum and and our hosts bring their different ideas to the table and I'll have on a, a variety of guests who have different perspectives to share. So I guess it's kind of twofold on on the internal side, helping podcasters find new audience and bringing new new listeners into podcasting, and then on a more social political level, um, helping to broaden the voices and perspectives um, that any one listener might hear. Okay, <laughs> I have two related questions. How do you go about deciding what kinds of podcasts to have in the Democracy Group, and If there are podcasts in the subject area, but aren't right for it, what would be a disqualifying character trait of that podcast that's like, no, not for us? Yeah, so it's it's definitely an evolving process. I mean, I I had certainly never done anything like this before. So there wasn't, and I don't know of a lot of other networks out there like ours. So there's no like master playbook out there to follow. So some of the things I think you have to be definitely educationally focused in some way. So we're not interested in shows that are just like two people coming on and BSing about (laughs) politics. There's, there's plenty of those out there. I, I have no disrespect for anyone making that kind of show, but that's just, that's just not, not what we're doing. Um, you know, education is and, and learning are at the core of what we do. So we definitely, um, you know, look for shows like this one uh, where, you know, Corey, I know that you are on a journey to learn and, and help your audience do the same. We also think about, you know, what 
what each show can bring to us. A, a good a good collaboration is is a two way street. So we're doing something to help give a bigger platform to the shows that we work with, and in return, we we ask that the the shows do their part to help introduce the other shows in the network to their audience and to help, uh, you know, on some of the the bigger projects that we do, like our student fellowship and some of the events and things that that we've done. So we're looking for people who are going to be good partners in that sense, who aren't just going to be like, yes, we'll take, you know, the extra publicity and we're not going to give you anything in return. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting um, at uh, the, there was a podcast convention called Podcast Movement and there's the Podcast Evolutions next week, actually, um, that the last one in Dallas, one of the biggest podcasters in the world is Ben Shapiro's production company. And they were a big sponsor of Podcast Movement and had a booth there. And there was a sense that I don't know if you followed this, but um, Ben Shapiro himself happened to be in town. Maybe he lives there. I'm not sure. But came and visited his booth of his production company for, at the convention where they were a big sponsor. And somebody at the convention took a picture of him, uh, posted it on their uh, social media platforms and said, I can't believe this. I feel very unsafe. I'm sorry. My tone sounds very pejorative. I don't mean to be so, but I had a very uh, strong opinion about that. Not about this person posting and complaining about the presence of another person whose content they object to. What I really objected to was uh, podcast movement's decision to make this big grand apology public across all of their platforms. And it got picked up by national newspapers. What are your, so it's related to the question I just asked before, is there a line somewhere that someone has crossed as the, the beyond the pale problem. You know, I know that Ben Shapiro isn't everybody's cup of tea. I know sometimes you could argue that he's crossed the line, but is his content beyond the pale or this is more, this is not necessarily a democracy group question, more of a philosophical the mm -hmm. theoretical question. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I think in terms of how I see the network, I, I am thinking about both you know, podcasts, and I, I hope our audience as people who are coming to things with an open mind and, and a willingness to engage ideas and, and perspectives and not be so quick to say, well, you're wrong because this, 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 this. I'm curious about your thoughts on it, Brandon, especially as it relates to, I'm sure you're having some robust conversations in the context of Plato University as well. Yeah. So I think, um, and one respect it's on the it's the responsibility of the listener to widen the scope of what they listen to uh, to get varying opinions to uh, be open-minded as jenna said um, especially when you're a content creator or you're a founder or a leader oftentimes when you speak you have to speak with clarity and conviction and that doesn't always allow for the muddiness of getting deep down into what does this actually mean? Uh, can we look at it from a different perspective? You welcome that in, but most of the time you're going to be putting forth some ideal because you're trying to get a clear message across to your listeners. What we do at the Democracy Group is with the 20 different podcasts in there, we're trying to have a podcast that speaks to maybe an audience we're not already speaking to or speaking to them in a way that they haven't been spoken to before. And so that allows our listeners take take a little responsibility off and come to this one stop shop and be like, okay, I can kind of get some different perspectives here, trying to help them to open 
you know, that view for them. But again, I think ultimately it's your responsibility to search out those different views. <laughs> so now I feel compelled to ask this question. What could a podcast do or a podcast host do to get their ass kicked out of the, <laughs> the network? Oh. <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean, if they... Uh, you know, didn't do anything that we asked them to mm. do as far as, you know, promoting the other shows or, you know, that that's on a very kind of logistical level. Um, if somebody woke up tomorrow and decided they were going to make a show that was pro-authoritarianism and anti-democracy or something along those lines, uh, I, I guess it kind of goes without saying that a, a commitment to democracy and and specifically kind of Western liberal democracy is is i think a, a a requirement for being part of the network i mean we do cover the gamut of of perspectives in terms of of politics but i think that everyone shares a commitment to the basic tenets of democracy you know rule of law a free press the thing other freedoms in the in the first amendment um separation of powers all, all checks and balances all those kinds of things so i think if if any show ever decided to like take a turn in a different direction that would be probably grounds for removal but uh, i don't really see any of our shows doing that anytime soon i mean never say never i suppose but who knows any tripwires for you brandon <laughs> um i think if they started to attack other ideas without like that uh, understanding or like open belief like a curiosity about the other ideas where they're just like fully flat out just attacking other ideas they're putting out almost propaganda um rather than a discovery process uh would be a tripwire yeah yeah it's funny uh monica guzman who's appeared on at least one of your um shows on village square and then actually now too because she appeared on our show as well has been very you know it's given me a framework to have these conversations radical curiosity into it moments int um i never thought of it that way moments you know um has been uh, has been really formative over these last several months since i read her book more broadly speaking what worries you the most about whether it's the american experiment or the future of democracy around the world uh, i think for me it's a sense of of apathy uh, and kind of how easy the way that our our lifestyles are set up today make it to not really get involved in anything outside of your own own immediate life. I mean, that's part of the reason I I'm making the show when the people decide is to lift up and and tell the stories of people who are doing something to to push for change on issues that they care about at the state or the local level. Um, because I mean, that, that has always been hard, but now I just feel like our, our lives, we live so much of our lives online. I've gotten into fights with people on Reddit about, well, we don't need physical communities because everyone lives online now. And so, I mean, if, if that happens, then democracy is definitely in, in trouble. Um, it's a kind of the extension of, uh, Robert Putnam's famous book, Bowling Alone, right? Uh, we don't have uh the 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 civic organizations and i i don't want to just merely be nostalgic for the days of the the rotary clubs and those kinds of things but i think it is true that a lot of those organizations 
have grown smaller over the years and there hasn't been anything that has come up in a real substantive way to replace them. I, I, I realize that there are you know, many ways that people form communities online, but I, I worry that that is coming at the expense of the, the physical communities that we live in. Yeah, so I had a, a couple things. Um, one, from a education perspective, like when the uh, founders of our country started first setting up education, it was a way to like specifically like a liberal education was a way to educate the public of how to engage within our democracy. The things that they were learning were making them well-rounded so they could think for themselves and begin to actually engage in government, in civic life in order to help push the country forward. Um, I don't think we have that much anymore. And as Jenna was saying, like our lives are pretty easy. We don't understand the actual responsibility we have as you know, an individual citizen to actually take forth due action, even if small, whatever your capacity is, to actually help move the, the country forward. The second thing I would mention is uh, this curiosity and openness to ideas. I think that our American experiment has only been going so long, and we want to say that this is the best version of democracy or the best version of a government that we can set up. I'm not at 100%, you know, on boat with that. There may be other versions. I think this hasn't run long enough to actually say this is the best way to do it. And instead, let's be a little open to how other countries are running. What are ways that, you know, they're functioning? And can we bring those over here, start using some of their ideas, try and make our country better in some way? But first, you have to be open to, well, this isn't the best version. And then to open to maybe there's better stuff out there. Yeah, well, to one of the points that you've made in in um, other uh, interviews and, and your writing is that if you work on the parts, you can ultimately help. Yeah, but I'm not wording it the right way. Could you? So if you work on the parts, you can help fix the whole kind of a thing. You, you know, the concept I'm referring to, Brandon? Yes. And this goes back to the complex system analogy that I was giving earlier. Like if we can start to work on the individual parts and how they relate to one another. Uh, so for uh, example, in our country, if we can work on a little bit of aspects, even down to the state level, if we can start working on, you know, different parts there, and then how do those work together, the relationships, you can have a more comprehensive uh, piece as a whole. So our entire government for a country. Yeah. Or our friend Liz Joyner would say even on the community level, right, Jenna? Yeah, and I'll just say that, uh, you know, many of the the organizations that the Democracy Group collaborates with are working on some of those reforms or, or some of the kind of small ways to make democracy better, whether it's, you know, projects like ranked choice voting. And we've we've collaborated with Fair Vote. That's one of the organizations working on that. Um, we work a lot with the group iCivics that is thinking about the how to re remake civics education and and bring it into the 21st century. Um, we've worked with uh, folks that are are trying to move toward open primaries or you know uh, getting past the the two party duopoly, all of these kinds of things. Um, and and so those are ideas that uh, I'm excited and and grateful that our network is able to help bring to to a bigger audience and i think those solutions are like really good i think the problem that we have is we don't have somebody like at the like entire level the you know thirty thousand foot view talking with everybody that's down here in the details of each one of those solutions and then how do we glue them all together so it's a cohesive piece because i think some of the organizations get 
so shuttled into what is their one solution. And then it's the only solution. Instead, we actually need a portfolio of solutions. Yeah. It's funny because I asked you what concerns you or what worries you, and you you both naturally kind of uh, gravitated toward what gives you hope or what, what some of the solutions are. So that's what's encouraging to me as I listen to so many of the programs in the, in the network, uh, Village Square, I've mentioned, Great Battlefield, Bully Pulpit, Common, Let's Find Common Ground. There's so many in here that uh, are about solutions to some of the great problems that ail our democracy, the American experiment. I, I want to ask you both about podcasting. What At what point were each of you introduced to podcast? Like, when did you listen to your very first podcast? Um, I listened to my first podcast. I believe it was like 2008, 2009. Um, there were two that I started listening to. This was like right as I was finishing up college. I was uh, seeing someone long distance at the time and spent a lot of time driving back and forth. Um, and so I, I listened to a show called The Bugle, which is a, a, a British podcast. Um, John Oliver used to host it back in the day before last week tonight and all of that stuff. It was him and, and another British comedian named Andy Zaltzman doing yeah British comedy types of things, still talking about news and in, in, in politics and those sorts of things. Um, the other one was uh, Kevin Pollack's chat show. So Kevin Pollack, the actor, had maybe like the OG celebrity interview podcast. Okay. It's it's not on anymore, but like before Mark Marin, before every other celebrity that has a podcast now, um, he just had all his actor, writer, producer friends on and they, they had... They did the show. Uh, it had a very like public access television feel to it. Like he had other people who like who were also like part of the cast. And um, yeah, it just felt like they were making it up as they went. It was before the like slick nature of, of podcasting today. Yeah. What about you, Brandon? Uh, so I was introduced to podcasts from my ex-wife. She had been listening to a bunch of podcasts while she was working. And this was the time I was working in architecture and like uh, I needed something to free my mind. I felt imprisoned at a desk, but, you know, my mind was still there. And she was like, well, you should, you know, listen to some of these podcasts. And I was like, okay, well, I'll give it a try. And I started listening to Impact Theory. And that was the one that I kind of just like, like binge listened to the entire uh, catalog because he'd been going for a couple of years. Um, and then I started listening to you know, different uh, entrepreneurs and whatnot. And what made me click over to, I want to start creating. That was, was my next question. Yeah. Uh, I was like, okay, they get to talk to all these cool people and ask them whatever <laughs> question they want. Oftentimes something that's going to better their life. Like, why can't I do that? Like, it's just talking, you know, on a microphone and I can ask them questions to help me as an entrepreneur get started and whatnot. Uh, so that's what I started doing was just reaching out to people and seeing if, you know, they would come on and talk to me for 30 minutes. It's funny you put it that way, because I, I didn't think of it in these terms. But one of the reasons I started podcasting was because of this sense that I've so I grew up, I was my family uh, lived in New York. And we were part of a neighborhood. My mother had to go to work right away. So our next door neighbor, Ida Manuni, watched a whole gaggle of us around the neighborhood. And I was the littlest one. I was the youngest one. And um, I always had this uh, sense of like not being included, right? Mm. Um, in my business endeavors, I've always been part of an industry, but not a, in the industry or a part of a company. Not So the very first podcast I produced, I was like, oh, wow, I get to actually talk to some of these cool people, you know? Um, yeah. Never thought of that until you mentioned it, but uh, that's interesting. So Jenna, when did it occur to you to actually start producing podcasts? 
Yeah, so it was it was when I started at the McCourtney Institute. Um, my bosses, who are also my co-hosts on Democracy Works, uh, wanted to do one. They'd been experimenting with various uh, media ideas, but hadn't really found one that sticked. And so we decided we would give it a try. Uh, I mean, I, I had no idea how to make the podcast. I'd never done. I didn't. I don't come from like a radio background or anything like that. Um, but I partnered with our NPR station here in Central Pennsylvania, and they helped us get the show off the ground. And are, are still great partners today. Um, but I, I also, you know, kind of resonate with with what the two of you were saying about how, you know, I had aspirations at one point to go, you know, work, be a big time Washington journalist or, you know, what, what have you. Um, and I, I didn't do that for a variety of reasons, but I still get, I've talked to a lot of the people who were, you know, my kind of on my bucket list or who would have been on my bucket list to talk to as, as a, a high powered journalist. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely resonate with that, like being kind of on the fringes and, and the podcast being, you know, a great calling card in, in that way to have, conversations with with people that you might not ever think that you should have you know it be any of your business to talk to <laughs> so speaking of which i have to talk to you guys about figuring out how to get winton Morsalis on my podcast <laughs> that was anytime somebody asks you who do you want to have on your podcast that hasn't been on there yet and winton Morsalis is at the very top of the list oh. his work last year that that whole you know uh that that whole volume that he published on democracy oh it just plus his contributions to our culture as a whole is just yeah. uh, uh, unmatchable. But the, the biggest surprise for me, pleasant surprise in doing podcasting is just exactly what you say. Uh, some folks I've been reading uh, up on and following their work and have been inspirations and exemplary for I've learned so much from from Pete Wainer to John Roush to Dr. Russell Moore to Danny Pletka, all, all these wonderful to Lisa Sharon Harper, like all these wonderful, wonderful people. I've been amazed hitting them up and saying, Hey, I have this podcast, talk politics and religion, not killing each other. You know, would you come on the on the program? And they get back to me and say, yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I've described it before as the upside down. Don't you know who the hell I am moment? It's like, wait, don't you know I'm a nobody? Like you're saying yes to me. That's so cool. W what are some of the other pleasant surprises that you've had doing uh, producing podcasts? Yeah, I mean, I, I would put Winton in that pleasant surprise. I mean, that was I basically did what you just said, Corey. <laughs> I, I saw <laughs> putting out this project called the democracy suite and i i had heard um some other comments he made about jazz and democracy and i'm i'm a musician i i play the saxophone i've oh. seen winton perform several times um a big fan of of jazz music and so i i reached out um and he said yeah sure and uh you know we only had about like eh, 25 minutes or so so i had to like be kind of on it and like you try to get as much as i could but um it was a great episode, by the way, because he oh, he he came on and it, it sounded like he was already uh, what we the, my Jewish family would call mishpacha. Like he already you sounded so familiar with each other. It was really great. So you were able to groove right into it, if you will. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and yeah, there there have certainly been others like that um, where where I reach out. Although um, I will say on on the music front, uh, Henry Rollins is still on my bucket list. Uh, <laughs> I'm hopeful that he'll come here to Penn State to to do a a spoken word show. Um, he has some very interesting interesting things to say about democracy and culture and what happens to democracy if you take culture out of a society. Um, and so I would love to to talk with him about that. So yeah, I'm still trying for him. Any pleasant surprises for you, Brandon? 
Um, I think it's been learning the skill set of podcasting and how I've been able to translate that into different areas. Um, specifically with Plato, all of our courses are put out as podcasts to get broader reach. And then a big uh, element for me is putting out education for free because I believe access to knowledge should be free. But allowing that to act as marketing to draw people into Plato University and the platform, um, get a broader reach that way. And then taking all of those skills, uh, bringing it over into the democracy group, helping everybody um, in our network in order to get them a better reach. But then uh, our fellows, I'm the one that leads our workshops and whatnot that we're doing for the fellowship. So it's been cool um, learning these things myself. When I first started, I didn't know how to do podcasting. I didn't come from radio. I came from architecture. Uh, so I, you know, self-learned all this stuff, tested it out and have just been doing the same thing over and over again, uh, just refining my skills as I go. You know, it's interesting. You bring it up as um, a, a pleasant surprise. I was thinking of it more as a challenge. There've been so many new things I've had to learn or things I've known about, but never had to apply, had to do application. For example, editing. Like I, I, some of my best friends that I've been doing a lot of business with over the years are editors. I've never actually had to get on the board and do editorial myself. So it's been, um, it's been a huge challenge. Other things, you know, like reaching out to people, in a industry, journalism or politics that I have no background in and just figuring out how to get over my fears and insecurities and just drop that note to, uh, you know, to an elected official, to one of my favorite governors from my home state. After we lived in New York, we moved to Jersey when I was a little boy and uh, Christy Whitman, Christine Todd Whitman, you know, just getting over it and reaching out. Um, what are some of the bigger challenges that you've experienced in podcasting? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's still a, a perpetual struggle to find and maintain an audience. And I guess I maybe I'll say maintain uh, because there are new podcasts coming online every day, more and more demands on, on people's time. I think that the pandemic really changed the way that people interact with podcasts. People are, you know, maybe they would commute to the office five days a week and now they're only commuting two or three days a week. And so people's listening habits have changed. And I think that the the industry is still trying to get its head around that in, in some way. Um, and I'm still like plagued by the question of how to get people to willingly consume content that they don't don't agree with. Um, I I think about it all the time. Uh, I I I know I brand him with it all the time. Um, how do we push the Overton window to get the democracy groups content in front of people who are not already invested in democracy and the the kind of civic engagement, political reform space in some way? I, I feel like we spend lots of time talking to each other, but haven't figured out how to crack through to the the bigger public at large. I have thoughts about that, but I'm curious about what, what Brenny, you look like you have some thoughts on it as well. Yeah. So my biggest challenge, the thing that drives me up the wall with podcasting is we don't have a direct connection with who is listening. I have no mm. idea who has the earphones in, you know, their ear at the moment. I don't know what their problems are. I don't know, you know, what, how my content is affecting them. And so I'm always trying to figure out how can I have a better connection with them? Is that building a community? Is it different platforms that allow me to speak to them? Uh, you know, the best way for a founder to actually build something that's going to solve a problem is to figure out what their needs are. So I need to have a conversation with those people, but that's very hard to do in podcasting because of the medium. Uh, so like at the democracy group, we set up our Twitter community, and then we also have our newsletter. 
Um, we've done user interviews with some of our listeners, you know, just specifically asking them uh, what things they care about and how they listen to our podcast. So anything that I can do to try and who are you that's listening to this right yeah. now? Yeah, it's interesting because we we are in the process of building a new site for the podcast. And one of the big misses that I have to confess to so far is that we haven't done any sort of email capture thing or newsletter. Um, and that's just one more way to engage with our audience. So far, though, what I've found is that all of these different platforms, you know, our different social media uh, pages, um, when we get more into um, getting folks emails and sending out newsletters and stuff, in addition to the podcast, they're all different um, interdependent, uh, but still independent in their own way platforms. So I noticed that there are some people that are interacting with me on Facebook that have never listened to the podcast, you know, and we put all out, you know, whether it's, you know, stuff on the episodes itself or content that's related to the subject of that week, you know, and some folks are, some folks do overlap. They are listening to the podcast and they want to hit me up. Hey, Corey, I was thinking about something. So-and-so said, you know, we had this great Native American uh, scholar and author on this week that folks, you know, had follow-up questions, you know, but sometimes it's just, this is somebody who we interact on Twitter and that's uh, that's the only place we interact with. So to your point, it, it, it really is hard to figure out who that audience is. The, the metrics that we get are more general, like, this state or this country has this many downloads and you know this episode has this many downloads but it, i don't i don't have a deeper dive than that but it'd be really cool but to your point what i was saying what i was thinking before jenna is how do you move the overton window and i've explored that in doing talk politics and religion in more in terms of persuasion but it i think it also applies to how to get people to eat their broccoli, you know, how to how, how to move the needle so that folks are more willing to listen to other opinions. See, I don't think that it would it would be taking somebody who listens to uh, Danielle and uh, Wajahat Ali's podcast, uh, Woke AF, and, and getting them to start listening to Ben Shapiro. <laughs> like, I just don't think that's real. But if you move in degrees, that you know, five degrees at a time, you know, you bring somebody like Pete Weiner and Russell Moore know how to speak in spaces like the New York Times, right? Where folks, a lot more folks who are left of center and, and far left even are reading the New York Times. So they know how to move in those spaces. David Brooks, um, now David French writing for those, those platforms. So I think getting folks who know how to speak in that environment, but maybe can move the needle about five degrees to the right, um, that might be a better way incrementally. You know what I mean? As opposed to thinking in one conversation, we have to turn this person around 180 degrees. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I um, I agree with that. Um, and yeah, I don't, I think that there's also social science research that shows that if you take someone who has an extreme opinion and expose them to the opposite opinion it actually reinforces what they already believe so their 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 minds are not changed it's, it's just reinforced um but i i was thinking of the the overton window more as people who maybe don't or maybe who think that they're not interested in politics at all um oh. what are the bridges to to other areas of our life whether it's it's business or arts or i don't know sports even like the other the other content verticals if you think about it in like marketing speak like how yeah. can we 
how can we make inroads there um, rather than just talking to the political junkies all the time? Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed, you know, politics and religion are, are the two subjects you're not supposed to talk about. But then you're telling me we're not supposed to talk about how we live better together, <laughs> you know, as a religious community, as spiritual community, as people who are asking big questions about God and the universe, or as, you know, my neighbor and, you know, the parks, our public parks and our, you know, all, all these uh, political questions, our taxes and where our taxes are like, so we're not supposed to talk about any of that. Okay. I have it. I have another question. So what is unique about podcasting compared to other media platforms, whether it's social media or the more traditional mediums like TV and radio? Uh, I mean, I would say it, it still retains kind of an, an openness in a way that, so if you think about to, to write something uh, or there, there, there are fewer gatekeepers maybe than in, in radio and TV and in print media, um, literally anybody can start a podcast and publish it on a platform just using their smartphone on, on a most basic level. And, um, I mean, I guess you could argue you could do something similar on YouTube or, you know, TikTok or, or Instagram, those kinds of things. But, um, I think podcasting allows for a depth of content that maybe those other platforms don't allow for. And it's not entirely algorithm driven either in terms of who sees what information. Um, and I, I also think that uh, the, the podcasting community is is just so open and, and welcoming. I mean, Corey, you've been to podcasting conferences. You you know kind of what that ethos is. And I, I hope that it can remain. I mean, there's lots of money that has come into podcasting. Um, speaking of, of making money, you know, Spotify and, and, and others have invested lots of money in the space in the past four or five years. And that has definitely changed its character. Um, but uh, from what I've seen, that kind of independent spirit is, is still there. I love it. Yeah. A, a couple of things I'll add is um, one, the nature of the medium uh, lends itself to more engagement in a long form. So like we can actually get into the details of the idea because uh, good and bad podcasting doesn't have much of an algorithm that you're trying to feed. And so anything that you put out is going to be weighed equally as anything else, uh, depending on, you know, the platforms like Spotify, they're doing certain things to push things a little more than others, but really it's, it's uh, democratized, you know, access for everyone. So it's funny you mentioned democratize because it's come up a couple of times in our conversation already. You said before, Jenna, that there are millions of podcasts. I I want to push back on that a little bit because I've I've actually read some of the research in the industry that a year or so ago, I think it was 2.9 million or maybe it was north of 3 million. It's probably close to 4 million podcasts out there. So yes, that's the case. But once you start thinking about uh, what the, what's referred to as active podcasts, you know, meaning podcasts that have put out an episode within a certain window of time. I forget what the what the measure is. I think it's six months or it might be a year. Podcasts that have uh, produced at least five, some of the studies I've seen, uh, 10 episodes. You know, you really start to winnow down how many active podcasts there are. And then you start to, still, you start to get into the hundreds of thousands, 300,000 active podcasts in the world. That's still a lot. But then, you know, when you start to narrow it down a little bit more in terms of 
quality content, you know, as opposed to, you know, two schmucks in a garage talking crap, <laughs> you know, we got plenty of those. Um, and that's, maybe that's me. I don't know. <laughs> but, but no, I, I think folks who put time to curating the subjects and the content and preparing well for a good conversation. I do love this medium. Uh, I didn't answer this before, but the very first podcast I listened to, I think it was actually a Mark Marin interview and it went on for an hour and a half, almost two hours with a really interesting guest. I forgot who it was off the top of my head, but my, my head, my producing hat um, kicked into gear. I have a little bit of background of producing theater and some independent film. And I just thought, man, this medium is awesome. You can have, nuanced in-depth conversations you know two interesting people having an interesting conversation about an interesting subject and really dive into it in such a way that it gives a sense of intimacy with the listeners like the listener is sitting there at around a coffee table with, with the uh, with the folks on the podcast that i just really um it sparked my imagination for the possibilities for the medium so just switching gears here back to the democracy group for a second. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about a special fellowship program that's been underway uh, with the democracy group. And, and it sounds like there's some interesting developments coming up here uh, for that fellowship program. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So uh, right now the democracy group is running a fellowship program in order to help Gen Z get their voice out in podcasting. And so we're helping uh, currently 10 fellows to develop a podcast around certain subjects in democracy, civic engagement, civil discourse, uh, helping them learn the nuts and bolts of podcasting, but then also develop their ideas and voice about these topics and ways that they can start having some of these nuanced conversations, start bridging divides uh, and being able to get that out in the space and, you know, have this generation's voice heard about that. We are currently on week eight. So we've been doing this for a little bit, but been having live uh, classes that we've been doing with them. And we've also had um, some content created by the hosts and our network, bringing their special expertise, um, some being, you know, independent producers, some working uh, with entire teams. So they kind of get a wide variety of what podcasting could be for them. And then the following four weeks uh, that are coming up, they're going to be working with mentors, the different hosts and experts in our network to develop their podcast, get a few episodes recorded and start getting it published at the end of those four weeks, which will be helping them to promote uh, across our network and then different media outlets and hopefully get them with a big bang. Yeah, that's really encouraging. That's that's exciting to see that there is, you know, that you're you're proactively helping a whole generation of content creators that are contributing in a significant way to important conversations. So I'm really excited about that. A couple more questions, and then and then we can land this plane. Uh, one is, do you have any questions for me, Corey? I'm I'm sure that um, this is something that you you've talked about, but I guess is there. What made you, I guess, want to cover both politics and religion together? Like we were saying before, it it seems like, uh, you know, any one of them is contentious enough on its own. We're just like, I'm going to like go all the way and just like really go for it and, and bring both of them together. Or, you know, I guess how deliberate was it to really focus on both politics and religion on your show? Well, for one thing, it's the two subjects that my father and I have been talking about the most in my adult life. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mentioned that I grew up in a Jewish family, or maybe I didn't mention it here, but I grew up in a Jewish family. I became a Christian in my late twenties. Uh, so my father and I have been having tough conversations about religion since I became a Christian. 
And when I became a Christian, I started going to this Baptist church, big Baptist church here in, in my valley. And I realized that being an American Christian in the 21st century meant a lot more, or in some cases, something very different than what compelled me to become a Christian. And those things had a lot more to do, frankly, with politics. So in my church and Bible studies that I was in, I was having conversations where the things that people were so passionate about had a lot more to do with their political and social positions than what we were reading in scripture. So I've been having a lot of tough conversations about politics. I think the two things are very intertwined. And if you look at the infusion of religious language with a lot of these political-ish movements, uh, it's, it's, it's incumbent upon us to be asking tough questions, having tough conversations, so that the religious language isn't hijacked by folks with really um, bad intent, you know, um, and that and that good folks of goodwill um, can maybe enter into these conversations to develop a little bit more discernment about what it is they're hearing and maybe signing on to, uh, and and question their own assumptions, you know. So I, I think it's important to have the conversation about both at the same time. Sometimes it's you know more focused on one than the other, but you know that that's um that's why I thought it was important to to be talking about both. Did you have any questions for me, Brandon? I do. So I'm always trying to learn and then also always trying to get better as a host or as a podcaster and then a learner in general. I know that you are a pretty deep reader and I know that you've interviewed some of the people that you know have read their books. When you are going to interview them, how do you go about formulating your questions or uh, getting your curiosities, uh, kind of mining that guest for the things that are going to better your life based on, you know, what you've read, the, the holes that you still have. Yeah. So I do read, if there's a book or books, I try to read as much of it as possible. Sometimes somebody is just so prolific, it's hard to read everything. But at the very least, if there's a book that was released within the last year, I definitely try to read that or one that's coming out. I tried to get the copy and read it before. I also, if there's someone who's been on other interviews, other podcasts or have media appearances, I try to listen to those. And in the process of reading, in the process of listening to other interviews, I have questions. I'm, I, you know, so I try as much as possible to keep on my phone. I have this note thing that I try to just, as I'm hearing it or as I'm, you know, um, reading it, I try to just keep those notes running and um, and then I work that into an outline. And Jenna, I gotta we gotta after we stop recording, I gotta ask you because you're a professor, and you know I gotta ask you about this process. But I just keep sort of a rough list of questions as they arise over the course of the you know however long it is that I'm doing a little bit of research. And then what I do is I, ha I have this loose outline. So before the interview, uh, a day or two before the interview, I'll start. I won't script it. But what I'll do is I'll take the running list of random questions and try to put them into coherent, coherent outline. And then um, it, what I will script is the intros and stuff like that. But then over the last several months, what I've been trying to do, I, I took a cue from, again, to bring up uh, Mani, uh, Monica Guzman. I basically take the script and throw it away. <laughs> I don't throw it. I mean, it's, it's still here. You know, so I still I can I always have sort of a compass that I can go back to. Um, but really, once you're engaged in a conversation with someone, I think it's more important to be radically curious about what they're saying and stay tuned in to them. So 
I don't know. That's it's not a scientific approach. It's it's more of a scientific approach that's very much in the beginning stages that I'm developing with the help of some wonderful journalists that have come on the program. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I definitely find that doing all the pre-research ahead of time and where you like you're kind of working through your thoughts like yeah. that, writing them down. You looked at it so much and you've listened to so much of that person's content that when you actually get to the interview yes you can have the outline but you kind of already have these things floating around so it's a lot easier to you know do those spontaneous questions yeah yeah it's like doing the balloon and the paper and shea and then taking the balloon out you know the, the research is the balloon it's like the substratum for for the conversation so yeah if if, if what has served me well and what i get really nervous about is what served me well is the research and what I always get, and my wife can tell you, the day of every interview, I'm so nervous because I feel like I haven't done enough. <laughs> Usually I end up with like pages and pages of notes that I didn't even get to, you know, get to in, in the conversation. So um, it, I, I do uh, I do try to stay diligent about that. If nothing else, somebody who's blessing me with their time uh, and coming on our program to have the conversation, I feel like I owe it to them to prepare properly for that. So with that... Last question, how can we find both of you online? How can folks uh, sign up for the Democracy Group newsletter, the beautifully curated newsletter and design newsletter? And um, and then how can folks listen to all these great podcasts on the network? So folks can follow the Democracy Group at democracygroup.org. Uh, you mentioned the website earlier. Brandon did an amazing job on it. It is very well organized. We have so much great content on there. Um, you can also visit democracygroup.org to sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter. Um, we are on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find all those links on our website as well. That is awesome. And I'll be sure to put all of those links in the show notes. Uh, Jenna, Brandon, it is so cool to hang out with you again. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Absolutely. Well, it's wonderful to have you in the network and we're looking forward to all the wonderful things we'll get to work on together. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks, Corey. You bet. You bet. This could. What's that? Uh, that quote at the end of Casablanca. This could be the start of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend. If you told a friend, tell another friend. If you told another friend, tell a family member about talk politics and religion that kill each other and about the Democracy Group Podcast Network. We are easier to recommend than ever. We are politicsandreligion.us. The Democracy Group is democracygroup.org. Did I get that right? Democracygroup.org. Cool. Um, or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S as in Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Mm -hmm.